My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Issue one is in stock and shipping now. And anyone listening to this podcast can use the code podcast at checkout to save 15% off the first issue of the magazine. As a reminder, copies are limited, so please order as soon as you can if interested. Today, I am joined by the legendary Bruce Mao. Bruce has worked as a designer, innovator, educator, and author on a broad spectrum of projects in collaboration with the world's leading brands, organizations, universities, governments, entrepreneurs, renowned artists, and fellow optimists. His most recent books are Mao MC24, Bruce Mao's 24 Principles for Designing Massive Change in Your Life and Work, and with co-author Giulio Otino, Dean of the Northwestern University's McCormack School of Engineering, which on a personal note is a fantastic place if anyone's interested. Uh, the Nexus, Augmented Thinking for a Complex World, The New Convergence of Art, Technology, and Science. He is co-founder and CEO of Massive Change Network, a design consultancy based in the Chicago area. And our conversation ranges on a variety of topics, mostly centered around how design can lead a positive change in the world at large. I hope you all enjoy this conversation between myself and Bruce Mao. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. I start off every podcast by asking the same question, which is what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Um, well, I, it depends a lot on where I am and what we're working on and what's going on. But um, I try to sometimes use the morning before I open my mouth to do some writing. Because I feel like if I open my mouth, it's going to come out that way. Mm. Um, and so I just stay silent and uh, get to work um, and do a little bit of work early before the kind of mayhem of life starts. Mm. And is there a certain is there a certain time you wake up every morning or do you kind of let your body wake up or I try to uh, let it wake up because um uh you know I try to have the the liberty of that. It's hard to sustain mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes things get in the way. But I, I generally try to do that because I realize how important sleep is. Like everything else I do relies on me sleeping properly. Correct. Um, so I try to give it as much time as it needs. And it never seems to be enough. <laughs> totally. Um, and so when you start this writing practice in the morning, do you ha are you a blank piece of paper kind of guy? Do you use journals? Are you typing on your iPhone or a phone or a laptop? Or what is your method? Um, usually on paper or on the computer. So I have notebooks, um, which I, I think I probably prefer that. Mm. Um, 
there's something really lovely about you know a fountain pen and a piece of paper mm -hmm. agreed so i like i like doing that uh, but sometimes if i'm you know it depends on what i'm working on if i'm improving something that'll be happening on the computer mm. So if you were working on, say, uh, improving a, a draft or a proposal or something that's work-related or something you're working on a building, then that's something you want to be collaborative and easily shareable and accessible, correct? Yeah. So, um, but generally with the, with the writing in the morning, it's not the, it's not the business writing. It's really mm. the creative kind of thinking about ideas and I mean, not the business isn't that good. Yeah, um, sure. But, uh, but I try to do the kind of personal writing in the morning mm. before the trouble starts. Then I'm, because <laughs> once you get into that, there's no, you're not going to get that kind of moment of clarity yeah. that you have first thing in the morning. Uh, would you consider this writing uh, like your form of meditation? Do you meditate separately? Um... I have gone through periods where I meditate a lot. Um, I'm not at the moment, but. Um, I think that's because I feel like I have a little bit of a better handle on that, mm. <laughs> but, uh, which may be illusory, but, um, <laughs> but, I, but that's sort of the, you know, I've been doing it now for quite a long time, mm. you know, 40 years of work. So, um, you know, at some point you start to kind of get a, get a kind of confidence in the, in the world absolutely yeah i at least have some kind of idea of where you're headed right uh, yeah. so i think a lot of people listening to this podcast uh will know who you are and the work you've done but i think there'll be a, a portion as there is with everyone that that don't know what you do from day to day so how would you describe the work you do now to your eight-year-old self that's a great question i'm a designer which means I decide how things get made mm. and really think about what needs to be made uh, and how it should be made uh, in the best possible way. I love that. And I know you've talked before about your transition throughout life into becoming a designer uh, and numerous different podcasts and talks, but do you know at what age, you know, when you were a kid, did you really start becoming fascinated with, um, you know, what eventually I assume you became to realize was design, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, you know, I, I was around the age of 12, drawing and photography, mm -hmm. and to some degree, painting, but not so much, became a real kind of obsession. Yeah, and um, I didn't know about design as a category, um, but I loved you know drawing houses and I loved um, drawing things and animals and I I just loved drawing and uh, and similarly, you know I discovered photography as an alternative to hunting. Mm. So you know as a Canadian kid. Growing up on a farm, hunting is a big part of the life. Yeah, and um, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, really into it, um, and but I love the whole experience of being out with in the wilderness and 
you know, yeah. part of it. Um, and so I got into the camera club, mm. and that really turned me on to photography and imaging. And, uh, and then those two things became kind of what I, you know, where I eventually went to school for. Yeah. Um, and then kind of, I mean, I got I got into design because. I was getting kicked out of college and uh, <laughs> I needed a job. Um, and, uh, and this, this uh, guy saw my work and he bought some of it. And he said, you should come by because they, I'm, I'm leaving my job and they should hire you. <laughs> um, and so I went to visit him. He was very generous. He introduced me and I showed them my drawings and my photographs. And they said, you know, we love this work, but uh, can you be a designer? Do you, can you design things? And I thought, it doesn't seem too hard to me. I think I could do it. <laughs> um, and so uh, I went home and I designed anything I could think of for about for a few weeks because he was leaving his job in a month. Mm. And so I just designed anything I could think of with my photographs and drawings. And uh, they hired me and I got to, you know, I started working as a designer. I had no idea what that really meant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh it was a wonderful uh, opportunity and it turned into you know a lifelong adventure absolutely and I, I i was struck by how you have adventurers and designers together on this podcast mm -hmm. and i thought what a great idea that's uh because that's really what it is it is an adventure you know you i get paid to do things i don't know how to do correct Problem solve, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So no one else does either. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, so I mean, the the idea for this podcast really came from uh, I've always been that kid that gets in trouble getting lost in the woods growing up. But I also, you know, my dad was an, is an architect, and uh, my mom is in data science. Like I had this like two split world of kind of art and design and creation and like deep level numerical analysis, and so. Um, it was no shock to anyone who went to school for engineering, uh, and and me being the ultimate explorer, always wanted to go to space. So I did, you know, rocket science, of course. Um, but <laughs> but you no, know, ironically, you know, so the birth of this podcast was around this idea that I found myself usually in two worlds: talking to people who qualify or call themselves designers, or people that are the people that are spending the most amount of time outside. And ironically, those people are spent the two categories I found. People that have full-time jobs and commit every single other waking hour to wilderness and the other people that just make wilderness their job. Um, so going back to something that I I, I I watched a talk that you did and you talked about how you grew up on the last farm on the road, the last farm on the left, right? And your farmhouse growing up, I'm just trying to paint a picture for people that aren't aware, um, it seemed like it backed up on a, on a large forest, right? That kind of stretched for, for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So when you were out adventuring into the space um, as a young kid, was there a particular place in these in this forest that you went to that you'd like to go back to, or was it just general exploration? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I think there are, um, there are a few places that were very special and, um, and in some ways, I I long to go back there. Mm. I don't think they're there actually, but mm. <laughs> I think they're there in my imagination. Absolutely. Um, but um, but yeah, there were a few places that were just kind of extraordinary features. You know, big rock, 
outcropping where you're kind of above the forest and um you know the the that experience that kind of immersive all-encompassing holistic connection mm. uh, was so rich and um you know when you're a kid you don't realize what you don't realize how special that is you know Correct. you don't yeah. realize how rich it is mm -hmm. you just think this is life this is this is a everyone's doing what i'm doing um and then you you know and in my case you know like we 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 didn't have running water in the house mm -hmm. so uh during the winter months so my job was to go to the well in the valley each day and provide water and um you know almost i, th I think everyone i knew I, I didn't know anyone else who didn't have running water in their house. Um, and so for me, it was an embarrassment. And I didn't see how that life was going to help me, you know, or was going to be relevant or, or was even just part of the story yeah. of my, of the life that I was trying to create. Um, and it took a long time to realize how, how important that experience was. Yeah. You know, how, how rich it was. What is the possibility of you going back there and trying to find these places still? Is oh, there... I've been back. I've been yeah. back. Um, yeah, um, actually, in the film, in the documentary, mm -hmm. I went back to where I grew up, and um, and it was pretty. It was it was kind of harrowing because um, uh, you know it's a long way from there to here, mm -hmm. and um, in time and, and space, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh but that you know I, I realize now that actually that experience was so central to how i work and think mm. you know that i'm very tuned in to the to the holistic concept of thinking about things holistically and and systematically you know really understanding how all these things are connected mm -hmm. uh, in a way that um a lot of design culture is really the opposite it's about taking things out of context to solve them right instead of really trying to understand the ecosystem that we're part of but understanding the ecosystem i think is is everything right and all good designers i think do it right to have a deep 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 belief and approach with systems based design thinking right yeah, yeah but I'll, even even uh, even good designers i would say um you know, we had a culture of design that took things out of context and made them objects mm. that, we, that we could solve. Yeah. So you take a very, very complex situation and you find the object that you can remove and optimize or fix. Mm -hmm. And then you put it back in context and you realize, wow, like now I solved that, but I created all these other problems. Mm -hmm. And we... You know, for most of history, we didn't have to worry about that. Yeah. Like it it was what we call an externality. It was it was someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. You know, like like I drove my car forward mm -hmm. and the and the exhaust went out the back. Like we, you know, it's very deliberate to put the exhaust out the back. Mm -hmm. Like if we had put the exhaust in the car. Yeah, we would have changed the car. You know, right. we, like we would have fixed that pretty quickly. Your system. Yeah, 
but instead we just said, you know what? We'll just throw it in the environment mm. and we don't have to worry about it. Or someone uh, else's not, problem. not my problem, right? yeah. externality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that concept really still dominates how we live. Right? Exactly. We still yeah. out of sight, out of mind is our operating system. Which is no longer sustainable nor appropriate. Yeah, it never was. Yeah, it yeah. never was a good idea, but but we could get away with it for a long time mm. because we were there were so few of us. Yeah, but now at eight billion going to ten billion, mm-hmm. it all adds up, and uh, and it's you know coming home to roost. Yeah, it's it's interesting doing uh, you know studying or looking at a country like India where you have people going from getting running water in some cases uh, to getting online internet immediately. Well, you know, versus like a country like in America or Europe, we had this slow ramp up of technology where you had the you know the the next thing it was the next logical step right that, that that made the most amount of sense but you have a country like India where they're making these massive leaps forward where more people are online and have Facebook accounts than have running water yeah. and it's creating these really fascinating and terrifying latent effects that are going to be disastrous to not only their economy but their environment um, yeah one of the I I uh, I came up with this idea of all of history all at once actually mm-hmm. when i was working with um with david butler mm-hmm. because I, you know we realized that when you're really thinking in a global business you have to realize that you know right now you know at this moment right now there are people in brazil working in a gold mine mm-hmm. who are climbing down into the earth into the hole on wooden ladders with burlap sacks to carry the, the 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 dirt out of the mine in a way that could have been done five thousand years ago. You know, yep. like we, if you could imagine an image of that, it's mm-hmm. not it's not unlike you know what must have happened to make the pyramids, mm-hmm. and it's happening today. And this is also happening today. Yes. You know that we're in two different places and able to connect and record and you know and have this kind of yeah (laughs) super high res and um and those two realities are simultaneous Mm -hmm. so we have a kind of world where we're living the entire history of humankind simultaneously yeah so we've got people living in in a world that is practically indistinguishable from the first humans and also people at the highest level of technology you know like amazing inputs and outputs and mm-hmm. possibilities and you know I- impact and power and energy yeah um, and those two worlds are happening simultaneously and they're really not evenly distributed no and there's also evidence of those worlds with us you know like um there's a book called Cobalt Blue, which talks about like the largest cobalt mine in the world and the Congo. And pretty much every battery and every piece of technology has a bit of cobalt that comes from this mine. And this mine is an artisanal mine. So for people that aren't aware what that means, there are people with hammers on their hands and knees digging out this cobalt. So while these people exist in terrible working conditions in some kind of indentured servitude, uh, 
you know, basically making pennies a day to create everything for us, the, the devices that we're using right now to record this are relying on their labor, right? Yeah, I, is... I, had, a, I had a student once um, when we did Massive Change mm -hmm. um, and we started the Institute Without Boundaries. I had a student named Tobias Lau, a brilliant young guy, and uh, he's Danish. And he, and he developed the concept of what he called supply chain tourism. Mm -hmm. that you would, you know, if you were, uh, if you worked in a company, that you would go and see all the places that the material for that company came from. So if you yeah. were, if you were in a business, um, you know, where is the material coming for the business that you're in, whether it's paper or wood or plastic or stone or steel, whatever it was, you would trace it back and go to the source and really get a kind of experience of what it takes to make your work. Hmm. And I think if more designers had that experience, they would change what they do. Agreed. You know, they would change the way that things are done if they really understood what they're deciding. You know, they're, hmm. they're deciding these things unconsciously. Like I read recently that, um, that your cell phone runs a refrigerator of energy. Mm -hmm. So you think that your cell phone uses almost no energy because you it just plug it in for a few minutes. Yeah. But all those things on your phone are running a server farm somewhere, mm -hmm. and it's equivalent to a re refrigerator. So imagine walking into a city today and saying, we're going to add a refrigerator to every house in the city. In fact, we're going to add one for every person in every house. Yeah. So if you got a family of five, you got five refrigerators sitting out <laughs> sitting out there that that you're doing unconsciously. Right? Yeah. And I think that that it's a real challenge to actually get in touch with what thing. you're really doing. Yeah, it reminds me of something you said that so one of the most impactful things that I've heard you say on one of your talks or podcasts was that um, you destroy what you don't design. And I, I was really profoundly impacted by that statement because in, in my view and in the work I do, I always bring it back to, you know, nature and the ecology of the natural world. So I think that's where I, that's where I've learned the most. That's where I think we can all learn the most. Right. And it makes total sense because as you said, the latent effects or the unexpected consequences, or though that's someone else's problem. Unless you're thinking about where the excess or where the output is going, then you're probably going to destroy something. Whether it's like a city block you're putting in a new building that isn't reflective of the community around it, or you're, ma you're making a car that is just putting something back in the environment that is, you know, not even our problem, it's our grandchildren's problem or our children's problem, really, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that, that idea that... Um... You know, I, I, I realized that, that uh, you know, when I would go in an airplane from, you know, New York to L.A., and I'd be looking down, I realized the entire way, it's all inscribed with lines. Mm. Like, there are lines everywhere, even, on the, even in the desert. Like, yeah. even in the areas that, that seem to be, yeah. you know, beyond the, the map, right? Mm -hmm. um, you you could eventually see oh yeah there's some you know, there's a there's a power line there's a train line you know the roadways yeah. whatever um, and you realize that they're 
the, the thing that really changes between the kind of rural and the urban is the size of the pixel. Mm -hmm. But the but the idea doesn't change. Right? The idea that we're actually going to control it and in many cases reformulate it, uh, it, it applies everywhere. And even the things that are you know, supposedly kind of kept wild, like the national parks. Mm -hmm. National parks are actually no. <laughs> highly designed interfaces yeah. to maximize your experience of the wild and also keep you safe. They're theme parks. Yeah, they're, it's basically <laughs> a kind of experience that we designed for you. Yeah. And you realize, and that led me to that, that kind of insight that, that when we, if we don't design it to sustain it, we will destroy it yeah. and we'll we'll overcome it you know with quantity with our presence and so that puts us into a really interesting place where you know at this point in history to sustain the natural world we need to design it mm. and expand it and yeah. at first you think well that sounds just like megalomaniacal but <laughs> you know, it sounds like you want to control it but for me, it's not about control. It's really about responsibility to realize that if we don't, the alternative is destruction. Correct. Right? The only way out of here is design. Yeah. And so this this all reminds me of this great piece I read probably five years ago. It was from the Atlantic or New York Times. I'll link it below once I find it. But it was called The Last Quiet Place in the United States. And it basically, there's this, there's this, society and their main goal is they, they don't this is not involving alaska or hawaii it's just the, the 48 continental united states find the last what they call wire wild places and they reference how wild it is based on the nearest road that would allow a motorized vehicle right uh and it's pretty fascinating that the, the the farthest place away you can get is the olympic peninsula of uh right outside seattle which is like i can point to it outside my window it's right over there um and it's 18.3 miles away from the nearest road the next number two in that list is 12 miles away. Number three is 10. And then by the time you get to the top 10, you're down to six miles. So the amount of places we have left in this massive swath of land that we call home is, and this was five years ago, so I'm sure it's probably changed, sadly. Um, but people may take pilgrimages to the spot in the Peninsula every year because it takes two days to get there. And there's just no other way but your own feet, which is awesome. Um, now, on the other side, um... You know, on the good news side, mm. uh, you know, we're working with uh, two scientists in northern Ontario in my mm. in my hometown. Mm. And when I was a kid, I used to you know, we used to drive through uh, through a dead zone, which was 30 miles around the town. Mm. Everything was dead. I mean, literally not a blade of grass grew in this place mm. because the chemicals were so intense. Wow chemical pollution from the smelting operation of the mines had so effectively, you know, kind of killed everything. Leached into groundwater and just poisoned all the vegetation. I mean, it was just wow. dead. It was like a desert um, where everything was black. So it was sand and then black rock. And the black was actually uh, oxidized sulfur. So it was, so if you picked up a rock, if you picked up a big slab of rock, it was pink quartz underneath, but black, flat, matte black on the surface. 
And I used to drive every day to you know, to go to high school. We had to drive through it. You know, we lived in the forest outside the dead zone, but we would drive through this thing. And um, I I remember one year I saw these guys planting crops in the desert, and I thought, dude, like, <laughs> what are you guys doing? That's not gonna work. And of course, everything died. Mm-hmm. And I thought these are like the losingest farmers uh, on, on the planet. Yeah. Um, and next year they were back planning again, and I realized eventually that they were actually uh, scientists, mm. and they were trying to figure out what it would take to recover the ecology, and how you know what they would have to do to the soil and the yeah yeah. And um, and I'm now working with those guys. One of them, his name is John Gunn, and the other is David Pearson. And they planted, they eventually recovered the forest ecology. Wow. They planted 10 million trees over that time. So they started when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And since then, they planted 10 million trees. And Jane Goodall came to my hometown and planted the 10 millionth tree. That's awesome. And they now estimate that there are about 100 million trees in that, in that big area. Mm-hmm. And it's completely completely transformed it's a forest again wow and they did it by not only planting trees but also they would take forest floor cuttings like they would just cut out a cube or a square rather of forest floor like you know eight inches deep or 10 inches deep and they would pick that up and bring it and drop it into the desert so that all the other species of the forest would be included so they did that hundreds of times and and then planted 10 million trees. And now it's completely um, re, reforested. Hmm. It's a completely different experience. And they kept a little zone that's like a park of devastation. Really so the like future that. generations yeah. will be it's able to theme. see you know, what it was really like. Hmm. So in that case... You know, how, so the smelting operations in the early 1900s or how, how back, far back does it go? It started in the, I think in the early 1900s. And they, uh, back then, the way that they did it is like so incredible. Hmm. I mean, really savage. They would cut down trees, stack them like, you know, 20 or 30 feet high. Yep. Then they would build a railway track on top of them. Hmm. And they would bring out the ore with the railway and dump it onto on top of the logs. Hmm. Right? So they would dump it like, I don't know how many, like six or eight feet of ore on top of all the yeah. logs. Mm-hmm. Then they would douse it in kerosene, the whole thing. And we're talking about like <laughs> 10 football fields. Oh, of yeah, this of this. Right? They would douse it in kerosene and set it alight. Hmm. And um, the, the conflagration then would melt the rock hmm. and the rock would flow off in one direction and the nickel which they were after would flow off in another because it was heavier and and so the the that's how they started to get so that meant that first of all cutting down trees yeah you know everywhere to do this and just you know it's like as any tree that you could get to you cut it down you stacked it up and um and as a consequence this the the pollution was so thick the 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 sulfur fog was so thick that they have to install uh, rope handrails on the sidewalk so the miners could find their way home because they couldn't see 
you can see the houses, right? And imagine that, you know, that's how it was done. And eventually it, um, they, they got better and better at smelting. Um, and they put, they built chimneys. They built the tallest chimney in the world called the super stack. Mm. And it put that, it put, it was like the exhaust pipe for, for the smelter. And it put it up into the atmosphere and it created a whole new dead zone, you know, down, uh, you know, a hundred miles away. Yeah. But that uh, that story of actually, um, you know, recovering that ecology is, I think, you know, where where we have to go. We have to not only save what's left, but also design what we destroyed. Correct. To bring it back. Bring it back. Yeah, there was a and, and a similar, I, I think, to people thinking and curious about why they would take a whole swath of forest. Um, there was a startup I worked with a few years ago that was trying to reintroduce um, the symbiotic microbiome of bacteria that used to live on plants that have been destroyed over decades and decades of pesticide use because, you know, yeah. nature is symbiosis, right? Like if, if we yeah. can all agree on that, we can, let's, you know, moving, moving on from that, you know, there were these bacteria that would live on plants that would increase yield and water retention and allow for, in, you know, yields that we haven't seen in a very long time. And so this company is all about reintroducing these bacteria to these plants and it's the same thing when you when you bring a whole swath of forest you're bringing the whole ecosystem you're bringing the biome with it right yeah, uh, yeah. it's a really smart way of thinking about it so so what work are you doing with them now well we're working on building a monument to their work mm. like we want to somehow create um, an experience so people can understand what happened mm. you know, what they've accomplished yeah i mean these these guys are you know, this is a lifetime of unrelenting work. Absolutely. Like yeah. They organized, you know, I saw pictures of the early, like they would organize Boy Scouts, mm -hmm. you know, girl guides. Anyone, yeah. yeah. Any, anyone that they could, any labor that they could latch onto, mm -hmm. they organized them to be part of this tree planting, forest clipping, you know, like this yeah, kind awesome. of effort. And they just kept at it, and they're they're still at it. Mm. And so the idea is to actually make a monument not only to what they've accomplished, but to what we need to accomplish, mm. and what what we still have to do. Yeah, because there's a long way to go. That's honestly documentary worthy. Like I'm, I'm telling you, like that that You're whole great. story. I mean, <laughs> these guys are incredible. They're yeah. like, how old I are just, they now? I don't know how old they would be. They're older than me, you know, because I was a kid when they were doing their first work. And were so, they funded by the government or private donors or like? They, they were at the university. Oh, okay. They were uh, environmental scientists at the university. And they did the unique, you know, they took on a really unique approach, which was not only to study it, but to actually fix it. Yeah. Right, to, use the, to use their research and their science to understand what needed to be done and to do it, yeah. not just to talk about it. Yeah. And I think if more people did that and versus learning about the thing and studying the thing, doing the thing, right? Yeah. Because um, no, it's uh, yeah. it's it's phenomenal. Um, and so we're we um, we you know, I re I worked with the um, architecture school. Uh, there's a new architecture school in my hometown in Sudbury hmm. uh, called the McEwen School. Hmm. 
And it is a um, tricultural project. It's French, English, and indigenous leaders. That's awesome. So I've been going up there twice a year. I'm on the board. They asked me to be on the board. And I've been going up there twice a year to work with them. Um, and it's through them that I really developed what we call life center design. It was it was actually in working with you know, and alongside the indigenous leaders that I began to hear the way that they were thinking about things. And you know, the very systemic thinkers. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, and at one point, one of the guys said to me, um, we think that we are related to the rocks and the grasses. They do. So not, and and our story is all that stuff was given to us mm. and we have dominion over it and we yeah. own it and we're above it. We're not part of it. Yeah. We're up here. It's down there. It's for yeah. us and we can just cut down anything we want, you know, yeah. till the horizon. And, um, and they had a completely different cosmology that put life at the center and not humans. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, we come to life with all the other species to honor life. Yeah. And you're part of this bigger, this bigger picture. And there's a, there's such a difference. Like I, you know, as I worked with them, I, I began to think about what we must look like to them. Hmm. <laughs> I just thought, I mean, they must have thought, Ravenous lives, yeah. like, they don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we just, like, we think, it's all about us. Hmm. And it's like, if there's a tree that, I mean, I mean, just to give you a sense that the government department that handles the natural world is called natural resources. Yeah. Right. And that, and even, you know, the, um, John, I think it was John Gunn, John or, or David Pearson said to me, uh, you know, even though they've planted 10 million trees, he said, I'm not convinced we've accomplished what we need to do because mm -hmm. people think of those trees as assets. Yeah. They're Instead not a necessary of, part of our life cycle. Yeah, not <laughs> yeah. not part of our living world and part mm -hmm. of us. Right? Like yeah. and if you think of it as natural resources, you're just biding your time so you can cut them down. Right. Instead is, of thinking, okay, this is it. This is this is the natural resource that we want. It's it's a living world. Yeah, and I always I always get caught up in I've had a few conversations, you know, spending a lot of time in New York with people who work in the venture capital or private equity worlds and and they view everything like that, right? And the way they talk about the environment and the natural world is horrifying to me. Um, but yeah. I think I think I think at least in American society, like I can't speak too much other societies. Actually, let, let me let me rephrase this whole this whole idea. So I, I know you travel a lot. Um, I know recently you've been doing quite a bit of travel. Um, I try to spend a lot of time in Japan. It's like my favorite place in the world. Um, and I love their approach to nature because they aren't quite as centered as I would say an indigenous group would be, but they still have a strong, profound respect for not only just nature, but how each other in society interacts with it. So is there a place recently that you've been that you've been just blown away by the people and how they've interacted with not only each other, but maybe the natural world? Um, uh, I would say no to that. I can't answer no to that question. Um, 
I think that we are so out of touch with this question. Mm. In the West, I don't know, um, you know, I don't have enough experience elsewhere. Um, but I suspect that since we, we've colonized so much of the world um, with our, you know, winner take all uh, concept, yeah. um, that I I would I would imagine it's hard, we're hard pressed to find places that are tuned in now. You know, I might I might adjust that slightly. I think Denmark, as a culture, is very tuned into this idea. Um, it's not particularly natural in its, uh, but I don't think, I don't think in the end this has to be natural. Mm. I think it it has to be living. Like living is more important than natural, mm -hmm. and and so Denmark has a very advanced culture of living. They do, and um and they're and they're even going you know working to take it to the next level. Um, yeah. We we did a big project there several years ago, uh, called Too Perfect, Seven New Denmarks, and it was about imagining Denmark as a design project. If you could design Denmark, how would you do it? And one of the people that we uh, worked with um, was a group that included Bjarke Ingels, and mm -hmm. Bjarke is one of the best architects in the world right now. Big. And, yeah, and he um, he did he led a project. He was one of the people on a project to imagine Denmark with an energy bill of zero. Mm -hmm. And the concept of the kind of design solution to that was, was to link everything together so that outputs become inputs, yeah. which is really the ecological concept. And so mm -hmm. that kind of synthesis and, and connectedness. And so, you know, you have, um, you have in certain cultures, a kind of more advanced awareness of that. Yeah. Um, but still, we're, you know, we're uh, the way that we're building, and, you know, the way that we're kind of doing things still is very much in the ownership model, you know, that we own the world. Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's there for us. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to get past that to a, to a world where we're in partnership with the world and you know, we're mm -hmm. in we're in collaboration with it. Yeah, Denmark is a good example. Um, I lived in Copenhagen for a bit. Um, I think I went and saw the project you're talking about, Too Perfect. Uh, it was at some was, design center. I think I went to some exhibit while I was there. Yeah, it was the uh, at the uh, Danish Architecture Center. Yeah, yeah, I saw it was that. very yeah, controversial. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful building and a beautiful design. Yeah. Um, but going off that, I think Scandinavian countries in general kind of have that. Uh, you know, like in Sweden, they have, I forget what the word they use is, but it's like flight shaming, where like you, you like shame each other and friends for taking flights when you could take a train um, or like for a, fr a, fr a frivolous trip. Um, and it's interesting to see, but, but I think that one thing you said is correct, where even though some of these cultures still have, are maybe more exposed or predetermined uh, to help or to be a part of, they're still not doing enough that we need to be all doing to help mitigate this future disaster that's hurtling at us like a meteorite from space, literally. Um, and, you know, like they're, they're miles ahead of us here correct. in America. But, um, so we've got, you know, it's hard to, mm. it's hard to criticize them for the, <laughs> I'm not criticizing them. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Although, I mean, you, you do have to, we, we still do have to say, um, you know, how much more opportunity there is. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, the interesting uh, way of thinking that they are really advanced in is to see sustainability as an opportunity mm -hmm. and not, not punishment. Yeah. Like in, in America, we've, you know, I think the, the vested interests uh, have made it, have, have, have successfully made sustainability seem like you're, you're going to have less and you're going to get punished. Correct. And uh, it's about how much, you know, how much you're going to lose. Instead of, you know, what they've successfully done is define it in the positive to say, well, yeah. actually, we can live better. Mm -hmm. you know, we can have a better life. And more. better life sounds a lot better than not better life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think one of the biggest problems with America is the the climate, just climate change or just a desire for a deeper understanding of society to understand what we're doing to this planet has been co-opted and turned into political movement, right? Yeah. And it's become yeah. identity politics, right? Like you can't have, you know, uh, like, I don't know if you saw this, but Wyoming... Uh, is trying to pass a bill that bans the sale of EVs by the end of this year to give more money back to the oil and gas lobby because that's what they want to support from like a legislative perspective, which is just like so backwards on so many levels. Like, like I just start laughing. I was like, I thought it was a, that was an onion article at first. Like I thought this was like a piece of satire, Yeah, but it's not. There are people that genuinely out there believe that. So I, I, I think this comes back to our, 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 what the system that we're taught and then what we see is that if I need to get money or I need to get something or resource, I'm taking it away from someone else, which is not always yeah. true. Like there is a way that we can build systems where that doesn't happen because someone else's waste or off uh, F you, so to speak, could be someone else's livelihood, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a pie maker, mm. you know, because I love the one. The one pie problem is a real, is a real challenge to get over, mm -hmm. because people intuitively think if you take a bigger slice, mm -hmm. I'm losing my, part of my slice. Yeah, right? and design is the pie maker. We can make more pie. Mm -hmm. It's not a one pie. pie. It's not a one pie universe. We can make multiple Thankfully. pies. Right? Yeah, and. Um, I mean, I think one of the most amazing things about my working life is that I can just invent stuff and sell it. Yeah. You know, like I just, like we did a big project for the NFL. Mm. And, um, and, it, and I was like, wow, anything I can think of, they can do. Yeah. And you realize they that have the money. Like, yeah. It's like, you know, and if, if we invent it, then we have it to sell. Yeah. And there's no, we don't have to cut down anything. We don't mm -hmm. have to, you know, it's like uh, you just have to imagine it and create it. And it's not always uh, a net loss, you know? Okay. Yeah. And so that concept of multiple pies, I think is such a, mm -hmm. such a big idea that, that, um, that we have to help people to see that, uh, you know, your winning is not my losing. Correct. Right. And uh, we can we can all win. So taking this ideology and turning it into something usable for someone, imagine someone listening to this is is maybe high school age and is looking to 
maybe they aren't sure if college is the right path or design is the right path or who, who knows what, but they have an idea for something to create. But it's, I think it's, it's easy for someone in, in their shoes to look at you and say, well, well, Bruce has done so much. Most people would want to buy or use anything he makes because it it is is proven that he has value and what he makes has value. So what what advice would you give to someone that has no pedigree that wants to make something successful? Um it's a great question and it's a question that we're working on. Hmm. In other words, um we're starting a project called Massive Action and it really is the sequel to Massive Change. I like that. Um we we did Massive Change almost 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a massive action is really trying to answer that question to say, how do we put the power of design into the hands of as many people as possible? Mm-hmm. And as part of that, we're looking at climate empowerment, you know, just, uh, you know, how do we design for access and equity mm-hmm. health? You know, how do we design for our full life potential communities, demographics, energy, and learning? And in the case of learning, it's how do we design to produce 100 million designers? Mm -hmm. How do we produce the scale of designers that we need? Mm -hmm. Because right now we're not producing enough designers to to do what needs to be done at the scale that we're going to have to face it. So you have a a problem that is orders of magnitude greater Mm -hmm. than the capacity that we have. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to figure out how do you make a hundred million designers, right? So how do you give people the mindset and the toolkit to be able to think as a designer would think without giving them a four-year degree in design, but really mm-hmm. giving them giving them a set of tools yeah. to say this, this, you know, if you use these tools, if you get this mindset, you start to see opportunities where other people see barriers. Yeah. And so that that's what we're- That's awesome. So, um, you know, we're how working on that. <laughs> Let me know how uh, I can help. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll come back because um, as we get it kind of formulated, we need mm-hmm. to reach 100 million. Mm-hmm. We need to find those people. Yeah. And I'm sure the people who listen to you are the people that we're looking for. I hope so. I mean, I mean, look, I, I, I think all the time of how can I empower more people to do something creative or become a designer or help create something new because you know i think the past 30 years has been driven by a consumer buyer uh not even a reuse culture just a just a how can i make the most amount of x to be able to buy the most amount of y to be able to prove the most amount of z to person a right which is just so boring (laughs) right but it's what drives modern society right it's not only boring but it's disastrous like, yes. like I met, um, I met a guy who he ran one of the big brands in the world. And he said, our mission is to sell more stuff to more people more often for more money. And I was like, I would smack oh. that person. Yeah, <laughs> like, I would just I would like, smack. Like, them. dude, yeah. you're so out of touch. Like, that is just not the future. Yeah. Like, and they say wow. that and people go, wow, amazing. Like, woo. Right. You know? And it's like, and it's just so out of touch with what we need to do. Yeah. Uh, my 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 dad used to always say uh, those are the kinds of people that enjoy the smell of their own farts, you know. So you just gotta <laughs> let them let them enjoy their box, right? Um, we we uh, we um, saw a film a few days ago that is about uh, a young woman from 
uh, England who um, is determined, she's a fashion designer, mm. and she's determined to create a sustainable fashion line. Um, and the whole the film covers her um, her story of you know of starting with the idea and mm -hmm. what it took to actually do it. And it's an incredible film that really uh, tracks through uh, through the entire process. And she, you know, she does supply chain tourism. I mean, she goes back yeah. to the seeds of That's the awesome. cotton. Right. She goes back to the source of the wool yeah and she um, in the end creates this incredibly beautiful and wildly successful business what's the name so, of the documentary or film do you know um i can't think of it right now but i'll, I'll get find it, for it, you. Link it below. i'll find it link it below don't worry about it um but yeah she does this beautiful um this beautiful work and it's so rich and um and at one point she says you know, I want sustainability, but I want it to be stylish. Mm. And that's such a brilliant idea. Like the beautiful idea that, yeah. that we have to make the smart things beautiful and sexy. Mm -hmm. So we have to make those things that are, you know, they're answering our needs. Right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we build these systems. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and we drive them. We, we blame them, yes. but we are actually driving them. Yeah. And um, and so we've got to come. We've got to convince ourselves, you know, we've, we've got to be on the receiving end. Yeah. Demanding beauty, style and intelligence. Exactly. And not one of the not one or the other. Yeah. It's, it's actually a shame. It reminds me of a conversation I had with my dad back when I was in high school, when it was like the first couple fully electric cars that had maybe 60 miles of range were coming out and they were all hideous. And my dad looked at me and he said, I've always dreamed about electric cars since I was a kid watching the Jetsons on TV. And my dad was born in 1960 for reference. Um, and he's like, but I expected them to look cooler than this, you know? And now I think we have some actual cool looking electric cars like, uh, you know, Tesla's controversial in different ways. I'm personally a fan of, of, of what Tesla does as a company in terms of an engineering perspective. And I think they got it right when they first started coming out. They're like, we need to make this as something that looks like a spaceship. Needs to look sexy. Needs to rethink what the car is, not just make a boxier version of something that someone could plug into their house. You know. Uh huh. Um, the film is called Fashion Reimagined. Fashion Reimagined. I'll link it below. Thank you. Um, but could you think of another product? I'm trying to think. Like rack my brain now. To think of another product that, um, like, is in desperate need of this beautification, almost uh, from a sustainability perspective. Um, Everything. Everything. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we have to make the smart things cooler than the stupid things. Mm. Like, yeah. and that, like that, that basic problem is, mm -hmm. is really comprehensive. We have to make all the things that are better and more intelligent yeah. also sexier mm -hmm. so that people want them more than the stupid. Right? Yeah. Like you, you, um, like I remember when the Tesla came out, I mean, think about what they could have done. Right? Yeah. They could have made a clunky minivan with awesome technology. Yeah. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. We never would have heard of them because they would have come and gone. Correct. But instead, they made the coolest car on the planet. And I have a friend in, in Toronto who collects cars, and he got the Roadster when it came out, the That's first right. Tesla. Yeah. 
And he said, since I got the Tesla, I never touched the Ferrari. Yeah. And because it was such a great, it had such great performance. Yeah. Like it was so compelling as an experience. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. so beautifully designed that he just didn't want to go to the old, like it makes things look old. It does. And I think that's the, that is the kind of the secret sauce. Agreed. For getting out of this because, because otherwise people will still, you know, they'll want to be smart, but the stupid is so cool. You know, like they'll, they'll yeah. keep doing it. You yeah. know, they'll just, they'll be, they'll be looking over there like, oh yeah, that looks, mm -hmm. you know, that sounds really good, yep. but this is so awesome. <laughs> and that's why I love, I love like what Rivian decided that the market they've had to attack, which is let's, let's, let's look at adventure off-road vehicles first, which are traditionally like very low efficient vehicles. And they made these super sleek, awesome cars that look great when driving around the city. But you can also, you can go overlanding with your friends on the weekends and take, you know, four people skiing up the mountain yourself, you know, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and that's cool. And then they use the same technology to make Amazon's new delivery vans which are all over here, all over Seattle. They're really cool looking. And I, and I actually watched a video recently done by some car reviewer. I'll link it below where he goes through and shows that like this van was designed from the ground up to be a van for delivering packages frequently daily. It is literally built for that purpose. Unlike even a UPS van, it's a it's an old school van that's made for delivering packages. So, no, this, this is a vehicle designed for delivering packages and every little part of it is thought. And that's what we need. We need that kind of system, systemic approach to design where it's like, no, no, we're not just going to take a van and make it so we can deliver packages. We're going to custom build something for that. And they found that this new van saves on average 23 seconds per delivery, which for someone like Amazon is, that's, that's, that's huge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, but, and that includes like the latent time of loading it. Cause that takes a couple, it's a couple, it's, it's 10 minutes faster and deloading it and cleaning it. And everything is just so much smarter. Um, and the most brilliant thing they decided to do was instead of putting in this fancy newfangled, like infotainment system, like most new cars trying to do, they said, no, no, no. Like we give every driver an iPhone. There's a little tray for them to, you know, wirelessly charge their iPhone. All the we're just going to design an app that works for that. We're not going to make some crazy interface in the car. We're just going to make it like just use the phone. It's already made. It already exists. You can bring it with you, you know. And so I, I appreciate that approach where, um, and I know I'm going on the side of a tangent, but I was really excited when Apple unveiled the CarPlay API and that they said they were going to be redesigning other cars infotainment systems because you look at like you get into a new ford or a new bmw and they have these new electronic displays and they're terrible they're absolutely awful they don't tell you the information you need they look awful so they're so apple is like hey we know what we're doing let us make it so it's safe and follows government regulations and let the users decide what they want to see of course they have to see the legally required stuff but let's give that power back to the individual because someone who has multiple kids and is driving them around all day has different, you know, desires than someone who's an Uber driver. Right. So but that concept that? of, uh, yeah. you know, the Rivian concept of really thinking of it is in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. right? It's very different. Like most car design is still object design. Yeah. So it's still about, you know, they think they're designing that object. Mm-hmm. But the real design is actually how that object fits into the world. Yeah. And so how do we really think that? And that's the Rivian 
concept really is that holistic idea. Yeah. And like they want to fit into the world. Correct. And they're happy if what they do inspires you to do something better. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, really brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and they're coming out more and more. And I think they were one of those companies that people were unsure for a while if they were going to make it off the ground, but they're scaling and they have the backing and the investment. And I, I got to tell you, I, I mean, Seattle is a wealthier area with lots of people interested in electric vehicles. Um, so I see a lot of Rivians around here, but every week I see more and more. There are already a ton of Teslas. Like those are a dime a dozen here, but it's, it's interesting seeing them because I think once people see them, they're like, oh, here's another cool new yeah. electric car that isn't it isn't a car it isn't like because like ford comes out with a lightning and it's designed for people that want another f-150 but don't want a gas truck right yeah. it's, they're not remaking anything they're just they're modifying and converting right versus like the rivian the tesla approach in my mind is like they're remaking what the car is yeah. right and they're and it's conceived as an ecosystem from the outset mm-hmm. right like um you know where it's really you know they're now what we have to do you know what we're what we're going to need to do is actually go all the way and really apply that supply chain tourism concept to say, okay, where's all this stuff coming from? Yeah. And how do we, how do we keep this in a continuous cycle? Yeah. Instead of, you know, when, you know, in Canada, I don't know if you have this here in America, but in Canada, we had a phrase driving your car into the ground. Mm-hmm. We have that. And, yeah. you know, I used to, when I would go hunting, you know, before I got into photography, I I would see like a, a an old Chevy mm-hmm. out in the forest with trees growing out of it, and be like, "How did this go here?" Yeah, <laughs> and it really was driving it into the ground. Like, part where it died. Yeah, and we we kind of still think that way mm-hmm. instead of saying, "No, no, no, we want this to be a continuous." Like this is perpetuity. We have to get yeah. to a way of doing it that doesn't poison our environment and doesn't mm-hmm. take from our kids yeah and we can do it in perpetuity and you're giving them you know you're giving something to your kids that has a kind of long-term value mm. yeah and and there's so many companies doing that now that are becoming more and more relevant uh, i'll bring it back to tesla because their battery day i think it was last year where they unveiled their new battery design they're finally using in their cars where they want it to last a million miles because they said basically the current consumer economy isn't likely that someone will drive their car into the ground anymore, but let's at least make it so that the next three owners of the car can still use it, right? Um, And I think that's cool. And so the the second, and and so the weird thing is this happened and their stock went down because Wall Street didn't understand it, which I love. Like to me, me, that's like, I I love when that happens because it just proves how, how cool something is. So not only did they make a battery that, like, I don't know the exact stats, but I remember it was basically like this. It takes a fraction of the time to make. It takes a fraction of the materials to make. And the excess materials in the manufacturing process is down about 90%, right? And this battery can not only be recycled at the end of it, but it can last for a million miles of charging and uncharging and running a car, right? The only problem is, just like a lot of things Musk says, is it, it took them a very long time to finalize and get this ready and for, for consumer use. So just now, it's all, all the cars coming out of the Austin factory in Texas use the new battery type. And the most fascinating thing is that they're made without the key materials that have to come from the Congo. They're made from excess materials they found here in America. 
And so I really find it funny, and I'm, I don't want to ever make this podcast political, but I always find it funny when you have the current administration in the United States who will speak brilliant wonders about what Ford and GM is doing, but never mention Rivian or Tesla. And they're like the most American-made concentric things that are on are in this country right now. And it's really ironic and sad that going back to what we said, like a lot of this climate movement or just ecosystem at large movement is being co-opted by politics in both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to fix it personally, but I hope what you're doing with massive change and massive action, I think that massive action, I really like this idea of enabling the individual because I think that's where this change starts. To, to go back to, so I, I actually have a question about one of the products you did. Um, so you worked on Mecca, um, which which to me is fascinating for a variety of reasons. But the most fascinating part of it that you mentioned was that because you're not Muslim, you couldn't go there. And so you did basically the whole job remote, essentially, right? What was that like? Like, what was, what was that um, process like? It was wonderful. They were extremely sophisticated and elegant people Um, they had a real challenge that because of the lack of design of the city i mean there really was no planning or or you know urban process they just did kind of whatever they wanted uh it created a situation where as the numbers of pilgrims grew uh the danger grew with it and the year before we started they had 800 800 people killed yeah, in a crush. Zero is too much. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, just horrible. And what you realize like, when you study crowd movements and, and dynamics and uh, the, the dangers is that when a crowd turns a corner, it's a very dangerous uh, situation because the people coming in one direction can't see what's happening around the corner, and so they don't know to stop. Um, and it can really get... Um, and it did get really terrible where you'd have, you know, 800 people die in a crush. I mean, it's like, you know, like that's a lot of people. And, um, and so they explained that, you know, they needed to change it. And um, could we lead a project to re-envision Mecca and to try to understand, you know, how, what would the solution to that look like? And essentially what we did was, we, you know, we talked to a lot of people. Um, uh, Muslims, pilgrims who had gone to the to the Hajj and had that experience, and what it asked them what it meant for them, and to, to tell us, you know, what their experience was. And a lot of them talked about the moment where they could see the the Grand Mosque. You know, that there was a kind of arrival moment. And um, and what we realized was that when we looked at videos, was that um, that was so important that people would drive buses through the crowds right up to the mosque right? they would try to get as close as they could yeah and there was very little kind of regulation or, or oversight and so what we propose is that we actually move the entrance a kind of order of magnitude back so that we could make we could design and build seven entrances to the city mm-hmm. uh, based on the on the seven pillars of islam mm-hmm. and create a whole other kind of experience that would be a new kind of arrival mm-hmm. where each one would have a kind of, uh, you know, conceptual model based on the pillar of one of the pillars of Islam. And, um, and that would allow us to introduce what we called um, a zone of respect that would be 
um, a place where people could have a kind of safe and elegant experience of the Hajj mm. and not have, you know, not, and it meant that you had to kind of do quite a lot of work on the space around the mosque. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, but they were wonderful. Um, ultimately, it was for one person, mm. and um, he drove a golf cart because he was quite elderly. So yeah. he got around in a golf cart. So the um, the presentation had to have um, had to be able to drive through that you could get a golf cart. <laughs> and we built one of the things we built that was very beautiful. It was very um, kind of almost mysterious. Um, we built a model at a very big scale, like uh, I don't know how big how to describe it, but <laughs> a very big scale. Yeah, uh, model of the topography of the region, mm. which is quite dramatic, and we it is, and we exaggerated it in in height so that you could really see sort of how it was organized, um, and then we um, projected onto the model the history of Mecca. So it starts mm -hmm. as a little village. It was conceived as a village of refuge that, because Muslims were being persecuted so much they made one place in the world where only muslims could be so that there would be a place that uh they sure, would be safe yeah um, and that's remains to this day and so they and then it basically expands out from there and becomes quite a big city and then we took it out uh kind of order of magnitude to say look let's design the future of mecca they wanted to do a 10-year plan and we said look if we design it for the next 10 years we're going to base it on the car because that's what we know. Yeah. But if we design it for a thousand years, we can't possibly know. So let's think long term and design an open platform. So because yeah. that's ultimately the best thing we could do. Um, and they 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 very much agreed with that. So we we did this um, plan, and when we did the model, you know, we projected onto the model. It was so strange to look at. People couldn't figure out what they were seeing. Because it was three dimensional and movement moving, mm. right? It was it was dynamic. It was a it was a live image, and you could see, you know, cars moving and traffic and, and really people cool. moving. Uh, but yeah. um, but it was a physical thing, and it was a it was really wonderful effect. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's products like that that really make me think because, you know. I, I love the person that will always say, oh, uh, no good work happens remote ever. And I think there are maybe, every once in a while, an example, maybe you know, landing on the moon is a good example. <laughs> but but otherwise, like, you know, I think this is a fantastic case study of, of, look, you guys conquered a fantastic problem with serious deadly consequences without ever stepping foot and never having to be able, like the ability to step foot, yeah, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah, in, I mean, they had, they had very comprehensive um, coverage. You know, they had very comprehensive sure. video, data, yeah. satellite. You know, because they, they knew a, they weren't going to let you in, you know. So yeah. that's awesome. Um, so, you know, in, in your career so far, you've worked with a fantastic amount of amazing people. Is there any unexpected friendship that has come from someone that you uh, met along the way that you like really kind of held close? Um, all kinds of people. It's been, 
um, as I said earlier, you know, it's been an extraordinary adventure. I mean, mm -hmm. the life of design is a is a kind of adventurous life without, you know, with very little risk yeah. <laughs> you know, of physical Great. harm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you have this kind of wonderful adventure meeting people. Um, you know, one of the uh, well, two of the people that we met that were really that really became uh, friends and. Uh, and quite close were um, Klaus Oldenburg and his wife, Kosha mm -hmm. van Bruggen. And, and my wife, BC, who also works with me, she she um, she became very close with Kosha, mm -hmm. Klaus's wife. And, um, and um, the two of them were extraordinary. We did a beautiful, beautiful project together called Large Scale Projects. It was about, it was a really kind of, documentary history of all of their work all their work together all their collaboration mm. um mm. Uh, because the, all the big all the big projects all the big uh sculptures uh were done with uh, you know between the two of them and so we we documented all the history of their work and um and they were um just absolutely wonderful i mean klaus is one of the most brilliant creative minds i've ever encountered um, he could hold an idea hmm. and just hold it out in front of him and turn it around and bend it and reshape it, and awesome. fold it, and uh, and do it all effortlessly and just kind of play with this thing mm -hmm. in his mind. And it was always just such a wonderful pleasure to be with them. Hmm. Um, and they, you know, they just were um, a real gift for us. They both have. Uh, passed away last uh, mm. not, not too long ago, um, but they were. It was a it was a wonderful, wonderful relationship, and um, and it's you know that's I think that's happened a lot. You know, like I've because mm -hmm. the work that we do is so intimate. You yeah. know, when you're working with people, um, trying to realize their dream. Yeah which is often what we're doing like we're you know somebody has an idea somebody has an ambition that they can't accomplish and we help them to to make it real we help them to solve it um to often to define it they they're not clear you know they have a kind of you know germ of an idea but but we help them to kind of grow that and really make it clear um and then to figure out how to make it and how to make mm. it happen and um, I can't imagine a better life. I mean, Honestly. I think this yeah. is it. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, yeah. you know, I got, I got really super lucky when those people said, you know, do you think you can design? <laughs> uh, so, so to kind of bring this conversation full circle, and then uh, I'll get you out of here some quick rapid fire questions. I know you have a, a time limit. Um, that that first project where you you went home and you were drawing. And you looked, they looked at your drawings or photographs and you designed something. Do you remember the first thing you designed for them? Do you remember the first thing you showed them? I designed a poster mm -hmm. for the railway oh, because cool. I had been photographing these guys who were coming through. There were these amazing guys who worked on the trains. And when the train stopped in my little town, they would get off. Like train and engineers? Just, yeah, they were like um, porters, guys that worked on the trains. Mm. And so they would step out for a few minutes. And I would photograph them, and they're totally cool. 
Um, and so I just, you know, I made a poster for the railway <laughs> for using awesome. this wonderful guy who's like such an amazing face. Uh, and um, yeah, it was just, you know, it wasn't too um, scientific. Mm. It was really just like, what could we do that, that kind of demonstrates that you're going to be okay using typography and yeah. combining. I mean, I loved putting images and words together. Yeah. I love the ideas that happen when you collide things. You know, when you when you see this and you think that and you and it makes something else, you know, it creates a third thing. Um I just love doing that. I fell in love with it when I was in college and um and so I you know, I I thought okay, that's what I need to do. I just have to show them that I I love doing that. it. Yeah. I mean, storytelling, right? Yeah. Creating creating narrative. Yeah. Um so I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Um, you can answer these in as few or as many words as you'd like. Um, is there a particular sound that you associate with happiness? Um, no. Does the answer have to be rapid? No, no. You can, as long as you want. Uh, is there a particular sound I associate with happiness? Um yeah, I guess the outdoor sound. I mean, for me, the, you know, I did a little film called My Lover's Garden mm. during the pandemic because it suddenly went quiet here and you could hear every every bird, every sound. And it was so beautiful. So I made this very little, uh, little short film uh, called My Lover's Garden. It was just a couple minutes and it had just had this beautiful sound. And the kind of flowers moving, moving kind of Sweat. gently in the, the wind. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And he, you, you're based in Chicago, yes? Chicago, yeah. Chicago. Cool. So, are you in? Are you in the city proper? Are you in one of the suburbs, or? We're in the suburb, northern suburb. Cool. I was just wondering how 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 like how quiet. No, it's very. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. It's like a, it's like a resort. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um. Do you collect anything? I mean, I see books behind you, but um yeah, I am yeah, I'm I'm a bit obsessive, I have to say. Mm, all designers but, are. I will I will all, all good yeah. designers are obsessive, but continue, yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's what a friend of mine calls the OCD advantage. Mm, yes. Um, uh yeah, I collect um I collect books certainly. Um and I have a kind of modest collection of art. I it's not a it's not a big collection, but I have um, you know, I recently, fairly recently, like maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, I began to realize that, um, that, you know, for not too much money, you could get absolutely extraordinary things yeah. by the, your favorite people in the world, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that there are things available. And, um, it started because people like Klaus you know, like Klaus and Koshik gave us work that they thought we should have, you know, as a kind of uh, That's special exchange for the, you know, for the commitment that we made to them. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we, you know, we ended up having these really beautiful things. Um, and that kind of got me into thinking about it and looking at it and realizing, wow, you know, like some of these things, they're prints that are in the, in MoMA you can actually get them for not that much money. I mean, in, in some cases, um, yeah. 
and they're they're beautiful things by the people you know they just made prints instead of one off painting they they made a quantity and so you can have it you know yeah uh, I do so that it. is a really um you know it's a it's an obsession of mine mm -hmm. um, and there's a beauty of discovering them too um yeah it's just like never ending i mean it's a, yeah it's a real it's a real challenge actually mm -hmm. it's starting to become an addiction oh totally <laughs> yeah so so um when I was working for Brian Collins, he's also a, a massive collector of original of original posters. And uh, we were up at the pop art uh, conference up in Camden, Maine. And there's this old art store up there that has probably the largest collection of mid-century yeah. art posters I've ever seen. Like it was Olympic posters and original army posters and air force posters. And like, it was all, yeah, it was all original, all, all was signed, all perfectly kept. And, yeah. But it's like this small store in this small town that has like eight restaurants, you know, like you don't expect it, but I think there's a story there. it's like, you know, and, and the guy running it had owned it for 50 years, you know, like it, would, it was his entire life. And there's always a story with every piece, which I, I do appreciate about yeah. that. And and I, and I agree with you. Like, if if there's someone that you love out there that does work that you want to support, like you can, the the bar of entry is usually low. Yeah, yeah it's real. As as it's not like Monet, and you want an original. You know? Yeah, so and if you, <laughs> uh, there's lots of stuff. For you sure. know, some there's some work that um, I really wanted to get, and you know, mm. uh, I have three kids all going to college. You know, so, sure. <laughs> so those yeah. years were pretty sparse. Yeah. Uh, and um and now they're out of reach you know like i'm never gonna get them. like they're sure you know they're, they've they're, gone sky high so um yeah. but but there's plenty of other things that are you know absolutely wonderful things i mean i'm hugely influenced by the bauhaus mm -hmm. um and um you know i did a project and took payment as uh a work by Jus schmidt who's one of the bauhaus masters and yeah you know, it's like a little That's tiny paid thing. Off. Like one of my favorite things <laughs> in the whole world. You know? Yeah. And um, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that, but <laughs> but okay. didn't make it's sense economically. Story. But you yeah. know, um, uh, you know, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Mm -hmm. I love that. Right. Yeah, and then there's sometimes there probably be, there are probably pieces in your collection that you that you got so early on in someone's career that you know you just you loved it for what it was and now it's you know worth something but you don't care how much it's worth because it gives yeah. you joy yeah right? I mean, I'm, you know we're not moving them for yeah. sure my, my dad my dad is uh his big obsession uh on the weekends is birding he loves just bringing a big telescope and looking at birds um and my grandfather was very involved with the museum world in new york and had lots of museum pieces that he owned that the family had for you know long time and so the only thing but my dad's most prized collect like a possession is in the living room and they're two of the original audubon prints um and and to him it's everything you know but to the average person it's like what is this somewhat old like because they're sealed and framed from the 60s so they have these like silver borders that's slightly like deteriorating yeah. and to somebody who doesn't know they're like oh it's just like this is this cool drawing of birds and but to him and i i'm like this is this was like how people discovered what new species were you know 50 years ago um yeah and there's there's that eye of the beholder part of art right yeah. yeah um is is there uh, a story that your family or parents like to tell about you or like to tell about you when you were a kid? Um, I'm sure there are. Um, 
I can't think of any one particular one. That's fine. Um, uh, you know, I when I was when I was very young, I sleepwalked, mm. um, and would would get up to some very weird things. So, um, you know, I looked like I was awake, mm. eyes open. I'd, yeah. Wow. I would get up. I mean, one time they caught me. I was like half, you know. A quarter mile down the road, I got up and left, and um, and you know I would do some some pretty wacky things uh, because you're basically having a dream, yeah. But you're you look like you're awake, yeah. And it's so you say sense. things, you say like you ask questions and say things that are like completely out of line, and you know that are dream questions. You know they're in your uh unconscious so uh yeah it was uh there there were some pretty weird moments yeah that's uh, there are some fun stories that come from uh sleepwalking but uh if we ever do a part two i'll, I'll make sure to re-ask you the question maybe we can get you to tell us the whole story um if if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family uh what what problem would you try and solve that or, or start to solve in some cases um, I think I would work on education because that unlocks all the other problems. Mm -hmm. like that's why we want to do a hundred million designers because yep. you know if we can if we can do that, they will work on all the other problems. Mm -hmm. So you'll solve climate if you solve education. Mm, agreed. Solve a lot of things. Yeah, and and unfortunately for talking about poverty and impoverished individuals, communities, like education really is one of the tr only true ladders um, that yeah. can help bring generations out of. Out I mean, of it's poverty. transformational. It is. Yeah. I mean, that's how, you know, I mean, that's my own story. Mm -hmm. Like I would have been a minor, but mm -hmm. I really got lucky and met a guy who helped me get to college. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, I would be dead by now. Yeah. Almost certainly. Some kind of poisoning or some kind of accident yeah. or some kind of something. So, um, and I wouldn't have contributed what I do, you know, I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't, you know, yeah. I mean, I'd probably be not a very good miner, you know. Well, the, well, that's the beauty of what I think um, massive action could do is this idea that, you know, I don't know very many unhappy designers, right? Um, <laughs> no, seriously, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's one really of the few. I never thought of it that way, but it's a great insight. Look, look, like most of the people I work with that are in the world of design, um, you know, everyone has periods of, you know, d depression, I think is a natural part of, of the human experience and the human condition, you know, but I think overall, everyone is stoked to go to work. They're, 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 they're just excited to make the next thing or keep working on the same thing or fix something, you know, like they want to tinker, they want to joy. And so, but also all these things, gen generally speaking, are a value add to society. Right. Very rarely do we have designers finding their living waking hours trying to pull things away from society, right? Um, in a negative way. So, so I, I always think there's this beautiful idea about like, you know, you're not only adding value to individuals and at giving them the opportunity to add value to themselves, but you're also in the process of that having them add value to everyone else. Yeah. Right. And if and if one every designer can inspire just two more people to mm -hmm. join the world of design, then yeah, that's, you know, I, I was asked to give a lecture 
to do the the annual lecture on the Cooper Hewitt collection mm. in New York. Yeah, this is the Smithsonian collection. Yeah, and so I looked at the collection and I thought, what what do all these things have in common? Because they have everything you could imagine, anything that was made. You know, they have versions of it, and I thought, well, how, what you know, what makes it worthy of being in the Cooper Hewitt collection? Like, what yeah. what makes it a designed an excellent design? And what I realized was that the common denominator was caring. Mm. That designers care more than other people. Like they, we care about the user experience. We care about the, you know, the, you know, how people are going to interact with it. You know. Yeah. And so, and when you care about the person, you can't have a happy, healthy person in a toxic ecology. So you naturally extend the caring to the ecology, right? So, you, so the designer really thinks in that kind of ecosystem way. Yeah. And if you think about caring as the core methodology of design, um, you realize that that that's actually the common denominator. That's the mm. that's what makes any design good or bad, right? Bad don't care, good mm -hmm. care. And yeah. The more kind of evident that care is. You know, when you get a wonderful product, it it communicates that life is wonderful, that people are capable of things, that mm -hmm. we can solve these problems. Keeps when you get a badly designed, horrible experience, it's like we're idiots, and yeah. Yeah. you know, like how what what a bunch of losers. Mm -hmm. And so that concept of actually uh, care as the central operating system of design really mm -hmm. informed. You know, it was like. Yeah, that's that's how we, that's how we have to think. Yeah, that's how we have to work. I love it. Uh, the last question I'll ask you is, uh, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's cell phone in a given area, uh, what would it say and where would it be? Huh? Everyone in a given area. <laughs> um, I would say. Um, that democracy is critical to our future. Mm. So participate and vote. Mm. And where would it be is um, in every democracy in the world. Yeah. That it's absolutely critical that we fight for democracy. Agreed. And, and not just watch it go down. Which is happening drastically often. So, well, we're you know we're uh, we're working on it, and we're um, we're trying to encourage, uh, especially young people, to participate. Mm -hmm. And in the last election, they participated in historic numbers. So, yep. Um, and I hope that trend continues, personally. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it will. And if we, yeah, but we have to work on it. I mean, one of the problems is that we we show up once every four years. Mm -hmm. And so what we're thinking about is a democratic ecosystem. Yeah. So how do you have a constant conversation about democracy to support that idea and not, yeah. not just come once every four years with a hat in hand saying, please help us out. Yeah. Um, and we don't care about you the day after. Yeah. It's, it's, so. it's, there's a lot of other systems, especially in American society that need to be updated desperately that haven't because of everything from special interest groups to 
uh, disenfranchising certain populations. Like I learned yesterday, I don't know, I, this is this blew my mind, but um, the United States government tried to switch over to a tax system like what Canada uses or like what Denmark uses, where like taxes are filed automatically. We just adjust based on how the system works and into it. And H&R Block basically lobbied the, the complex tax system because it's how they make money. And uh, they were able last year to kill legislation to change the tax system with just $3 million of lobbying money. Uh, and they made over $3 billion last year. So that's the kind of thing with me that just makes me just really angry and really want to go out and make something that fixes it, you know? Because um, it's it's sad. Especially because they're running those ads now that they say, you know, come to TurboTax and don't do your taxes, which is, you know, yeah, that's what we all shouldn't be doing, right? Um, <laughs> Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Um, do you have anything you'd like to uh, share with the audience? Um, make sure they go look at, go see, go learn, go read. Well, massive action, um, you know, it's it's still in its uh, beginning stages, but if you're interested, please, you know, get in touch with us. We'll do. Um, if you want to participate. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, and it will be, you know, coming to a, a theater near you. And, and in fact, on that note, um, there's a documentary called Mao, M-A-U, mm -hmm. uh, that is distributed by Greenwich. Um, and it's available on Amazon and Apple, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it does a pretty good, does a really good job actually at telling our story. So, Great. I'll link that below as well at the top of the list. Um, great. Well, I look forward to connecting with you offline shortly after this. But um, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Bruce Mao. You can find Bruce online by simply Googling his name, Bruce Mao. That's B-R-U-C-E-M-A-U. -E he is very active on social media, especially LinkedIn. And on Instagram, you'll find him at Real Bruce Mao. As always, my name is Rob Auchincloss, and you can find me online at Rob Auchincloss or robislost.com. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Goodbye.